This is Our American Stories. When you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment. And we do that about people who are about to die, eulogies, and death's a part of life. And sometimes we got to go there. And today we have a contributor reading his article entitled, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. And the writing comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and a university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. As he sat thinking of what his wife's friend was going through, he thought of what his own mother went through when his father died. When he thought of his friend's kids, he remembered what it was like when he lost his dad. He wrote it down and sent it to the Boston Globe, and when they accepted it, he sent the check they gave him to his wife's best friend. When Reader's Digest published it, he sent her that money too. Here is Willie reading the story. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems, but once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash, mountains in whatever direction I looked, and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. 
I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form, on my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And that was a dog sneezing, if you can believe it. One more time, Jesse. And that was BarkPost.com's selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015. And we played this delicious sneeze, and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life. And I have a I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring, and I am going to record that just for this guest the next time she joins us. And it's Jory Larson now joins us, and she is, well, she's the key person behind BarkPost.com. Thanks for joining us, Jory. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, many people believe dogs are people. I do. I mean, they are members of my family. I want to play another short clip for you, this time of dog owners treating their now-famous dog, Mishka, with over 100 million YouTube views like a human. Mishka, I love you. I love you. I love you. Good girl. I love you. Jory, in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test. And it That's didn't go right. and it didn't did. go well. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So um Bark Post, one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we, we have this idea for um an at home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So um I followed along. There's an internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along <laughs> at home. Um I, I took an afternoon and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps. You can do it in less than an hour. Um, and I was really curious to see what Winnie's IQ would be. Like any dog owner, um, you know, you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times. And, of course, they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when they're yeah. uh, behaving like less than an Einstein. But um, the test actually it was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted. I, I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform. And your, your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two-year-old Australian Shepherd, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a breed that's pretty, pretty known for their intelligence. Um, right up there with Border Collies. At least that's what Australian Shepherd owners always kind of, uh, maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as Border Collies. Um, but, yeah, so she's, she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought was kind of uh, a, signi- you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform. Well, I can tell you this. I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Jory, because these dogs, they're just not bright. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, your, you said at one point, you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory. Yeah, yeah. So we actually, um, I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door, and we started when, we got her when she was 10 weeks old, so we started right away. Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks. So she was, she was less than three months old. She would nudge the bells with her nose, and then we would know to let her out. Right. So 
we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's, it's darn smart. And again, I, I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog, because ours are, are so silly. They, they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they, they get confused about, like, pooping. So tell us about the test you did with, well, a, that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test. Yes. So, so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch, and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now? Um, so she did wiggle off, and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds. So that earned her three points on, on the scale. And if it took them... You know, 31 seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, <laughs> right. they get zero points. They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know they're a zero. Jory, I don't, I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about talk about some other things that you're you're you're, you're testing in, in this in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence? So we also there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high value treat, so whether it's salami or string cheese or whatever your dog you know really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath. Um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start to stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she was actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese through the towel. <laughs> it's like right. she, she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was a, that was a minor setback. Yeah, I'm not sure how my, my producers would do on that one, though, either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. Any other any other tests, Jory? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, the third the third step in this test, you um, it's it involves a treat again. So you're going to cut up another piece of your high value treat, and you make a little wooden plank, you know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported. We did books on either end, and we place the treat underneath the wooden plank, far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with. Her, her muzzle alone, she has to use a paw. That's, this is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their, their snout? And so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again and uh, you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out, you know, get off the towel and get to the treat. Um, and so with Winnie again, she, she pawed at the towel. She was able to pull it from underneath the plank. She understood that she had to use her paws, but she could not, she, she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew this time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel and actually she put a hole in my brand new towel, which I should never have used for this time. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory. <laughs> right. And I will say, I think 
you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all, all of these tricks and I think she was kind of suspicious. So if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform. Right. The heck with them. What are, the, what are they doing to me? And this is, uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I'd love, Joey? Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives. And I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Joey? Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs and, and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Post. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog sitter anymore. You take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. It's, I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, yeah, and it does feel like maybe, maybe there is something there that the families are getting a little bit smaller, people are living further away from their family members, so it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door, and, you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and, and it makes you feel like home when, well, whenever you're with your dog. I think so. that's what's going on, too, and I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me, and so... I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Joey. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Joey Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining sounds, us. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials. And playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love. And we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages. And you call me out. I can't hide anymore. I have no disguise. You can't sit through this is our american stories and this one is unusual i want to read a quote from john gardner the former secretary of health under lyndon johnson the president of the United States in the 60s. Quote, The society which scorns excellence in plumbing as a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because it is an exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. This is the unspoken story about the small, unmentionable seat in the corner of our lives. Or said another way, this is how we have been shaped by our grossest national product. Here's Greg Hengler. Elvis died in one, and Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, was born on one. Although we use them every day, most of us know very little about toilets. Here's author of The Porcelain God, Julie Horin, 
and public health historian David Rossner. Not only did civilization start with the onset of writing, but it also started with man actually coming and getting uh, a hold of his sanitation needs. Creation of sanitary systems were in some sense the basis for creating great cities and great communities. The earliest written reference to the disposal of human waste is more than 3,600 years old and is found in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 23, 12-13, God instructs the Hebrews to do their exodus in a holy fashion. You are to have a place outside the camp. Go there to relieve yourself. You are to have a digging tool in your equipment. When you relieve yourself, dig a hole with it and cover up your excrement. For hundreds of thousands of years before this was written, Human beings simply squatted when they had the urge to go. As the world became more populated, disposal of human waste became a bit more difficult. In ancient Egypt, cities began to spring up from the desert. By 2500 BC, the Egyptians solved the waste disposal dilemma, constructing bathrooms with latrines which were flushed by hand with buckets of water. The latrines emptied into earthenware pipes many of which are still functional today. The Roman Empire also had a public sewage system. Here's David Rossner and sociologist Stephen Seufer. Rome was not built in a day, but it was built around its water supply system and its ability to get rid of its material without polluting itself or polluting people downstream. Their development of the bathroom was incredible. Middle-class Romans in their homes were able to hook up a private bathroom to the public sewer system that Rome had developed and actually have the waste carried away to the main sewage disposal plant. Like Rome's private lavatories, their public latrines, which were seat holes carved into stone benches, were erected over channels of water that came from distant mountain streams that flowed through aqueducts for over 200 miles. Here's poet Eva Upglin visiting some Roman restroom ruins. This was a communal privy. You'd have sat here, the seat has disappeared, and your waste would have dropped into this drainage channel here. The water flushed the waste away, nobody had to touch it, and of course, as it dropped into the water, that minimised smell. Now then, this second water channel running in front of us here was what you would have used to wash yourself afterwards. You would have had a stick with a piece of sponge on the end, dip that in the water, wash behind yourself, thus giving rise to the phrase the importance of not getting hold of the wrong end of the stick. But the privy, which takes its name from the Latin word for privacy, couldn't save the Roman Empire. And when it finally fell, the water-fed toilet fell into the lavatorial dark ages, clogging up toilet innovation for more than a thousand years. During these medieval times, castle dwellers would strengthen their defenses by dumping waste into their moats. The raw sewage discouraged invaders from crossing. Here's physicist Charles Panetti, author of Extraordinary Origins. The only thing that you had indoors for the next, really, a thousand years was the chamber pot, which was really something of a horror story. It was a convenience in one way when you needed to go in the middle of the night. At nighttime was the time when people would 
dump the contents of this uh, chamber pot outside their windows into the streets below. And the idea that a man walks on the left side of the female dates back to this time. It was polite for him to get hit by the contents of the chamber pot and to spare the woman. In the 16th century, the flushing toilet made its debut in England. The first nearly modern toilet was made for Queen Elizabeth I in 1596. It was made by her godson, Sir John Harrington. He made it to get back in her good graces because she had banished him from court for using foul language. He came up with a really clever device. It had a tank at the top, it had a valve you opened to let water down, and there was a trap door that you could close after you used the toilet. Harrington's primitive toilet had a critical design flaw. One, the flushing sound was ear-piercing. And, number two, the pipe beneath the bowl was vertical. Waste went straight down, and sewer smells came straight up. The queen complained that fumes came up from the cesspool, uh, but it was a problem that her godson was never able to solve. You realize how bad the situation was if you look at the Palace of Versailles. A fortune was spent in constructing it. It had these wonderful hall of mirrors, elaborate chandeliers, and you might have a thousand people being entertained, eating and drinking copiously, but where did they go to the bathroom? There was not a single bathroom in the entire elaborate palace. And the answer is, they went in the stairwells. And one of the reasons the French applied so much perfume during that period was to overcome all of the indoor odors from people relieving themselves. Outside Versailles, People were relieving themselves in indoor cesspits. They were simply benches or seats perched over holes lined with wood, stone, or brick. Their main drawback, aside from the smell, was that you had to pay nightmen called scavengers wielding a bucket and a shovel to clean them out and carry them on a horse-drawn cart to local streams and rivers. This is why it pays to be upstream. And if you ventured into town and nature called, a man called a Johnny offered his customers privacy. He wore a large black cape and carried a chamber pot. The customer would pay a half a cent and squat over the pot while Johnny covered him with the large cape. Fast forward to 18th century America. Colonists modified the cesspit by taking it outside and constructing a small wooden shack over it. The outhouse was born. They would place the uh, outhouses far enough from the house where there would not be uh, problems with smell or with seeping into the water supply of the house. In 1775, while America was embroiled in the Revolutionary War, back in the mother country, another revolution was taking place. British watchmaker Alexander Cumming filed for the first ever patent on a toilet with a twist. Literally, the pipe beneath Cummings' toilet bowl curved backward in a distinctive S-shaped bend. This allowed water to pool in the U-shaped part of the pipe, cutting off the explosive and stinky sewer gas from below. It actually is the modern toilet because we still have that water separating us from the cesspool today. Long before President Lyndon Johnson held meetings with Robert Kennedy while sitting on the John, the toilet played a leading role in governing our nation. America's first owner of this modern toilet was Thomas Jefferson, who had three of these elite oddities installed at Monticello. 
By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. And when we come back, more on the story, the history of the toilet with Craig Hengler here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and that was Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from 1994's Dumb and Dumber. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the unspoken story of the toilet. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. Here's David Rossner and scientist Adam Hart Davis. If you have a privy and it's uh, not too far away from your pump, you're going to have a real problem. You may literally be drinking the excrement that you're dumping the day before. Absolutely disgusting. And when they had drains, the drains simply went out into the street. So all the streets were running with sewage. Toilet technology could only go so far until engineers could construct water delivery systems like the Roman aqueducts, able to service entire cities. In 1842, contending with the sudden rise of population due to an influx of immigrants, New York City paved the way. The system's designers harnessed a fundamental law of nature, that water always flows downhill. That water in your city follows the same principle. Water is pumped to the top of giant towers that are linked to pipes beneath the streets. Since the tower is higher than the water's final destination, Gravity maintains pressure and forces the water through the pipes to your tap and toilet. After water is used, gravity is rendered once again and carries it away through sewer pipes angled downhill. During the 19th century, more and more cities followed New York's example. At the turn of the 20th century, plumbing was an exploding business in America, much like web search engines are today. And by the 1930s, America's entire urban population had access to running water. In 1854, a 10-year-old boy, John Michael Kohler, was brought to America from Austria by his father. This boy would become the Steve Jobs of toilet technology. With the purchase of a majority interest in Union Iron and Steel Foundry in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 19 years later, he founded Kohler Company and successfully traversed the burgeoning sanitation market. The father of six developed his company into one of the few family-owned businesses still in existence dating from the turn of the century. About three-quarters of feces is water, and 10% is undigested food, but the remaining 15% is all bacteria, billions of them. 
and it's these bacteria that give feces its distinctive smell. Most of the bacteria are harmless and spend their lives processing the food inside our intestines, but some are lethal. Feces contain all the fiber that we can't digest that comes in the breakfast cereal and in fresh fruits and vegetables and so on. They contain the remains of dead blood cells, which is why it's brown, because that's what the remains are. It's stuff called bilirubin, which comes from broken down blood cells, and it contains enormous quantities of bacteria. And if you ingest those bacteria, if you eat them, then you're going to get very ill. Historically, the two great diseases that are associated with human waste are, of course, cholera. People can be perfectly healthy in the morning and be dead, literally dead in the evening. And uh, typhoid, another horrendous disease that is terrifying in its various aspects in that it creates terrible welts and rashes and also terrible fevers and sickness among anyone who comes into contact with it. Between 1831 to 1832, 50,000 Brits died from cholera. In Paris, cholera killed 18,000 in a single summer. The U.S. was next. Cholera had been moving east from Asia into Europe. In 1832, it had reached Paris and it had reached London, and it was very, very serious disease. We never expected to hit here. And then 1832, it hit Boston, it hit Philadelphia. More than 150,000 Americans died during the two cholera pandemics between 1832 and 1849. With the help of the new toilet, the westernized world was drowning in its own excrement. The smell, germs, and death finally led politicians to an effective solution. High-capacity sewers that carried the waste far away from town. They're sort of monuments to excrement, if you like. And uh, I've been down the sewers, and it's absolutely amazing how well they were built. The stuff running through them is not fun, but the sewers themselves are utterly brilliant. As the astronauts were to be the heroes of the 20th century, in the 19th century, toilet inventors were the giants that walked among men. The key innovation was a water-siphoning system to force waste through the base of the bowl with unparalleled efficiency. What worked then still works now. Once the toilet bowl's flush handle is pulled, a valve inside the holding tank called the flapper opens up and water drains quickly into the bowl through a series of angled holes under the rim. The man who is often credited with inventing this flushing wonder probably had little to do with it. Thomas Crapper. Yes, he really existed. What he did patent is the pull chain that worked in conjunction with a valveless cistern, thus decreasing noise and preserving water. Due to his toilet innovations, the Victorian-era plumbing magnate earned himself a place in toilet history, if only by selling lots of them. During World War I, when American soldiers were stationed over in Britain, they would come across a lot of these toilets, and they started the euphemism of, I'm going to the crapper, and they based it on what they saw on the toilets, which said Thomas Crapper and company. And the John is derived from the toilets installed at Harvard University in 1735, which were emblazoned with the manufacturer's name Reverend Edward Johns. While Crapper and Johns were making a name for themselves, 
two enterprising brothers were busy inventing the toilet's most essential accessory. Although the Chinese invented paper in the second century, it took them more than 1,200 years to get around to using it in the bathroom. They finally did in 1391 AD, but it was strictly for the use of emperors. Where did that leave commoners? People generally used their hands, and, in, and currently in many uh, countries around the world where paper is a premium, people continue to use their left hand. That is why when you travel to uh, parts of the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and Asia, you won't find any left-handed people. Everyone there is right-handed because the left hand is considered unclean. In medieval Europe, commoners used hay, grass, and plant leaves to clean themselves. In early America, Millions used corn cobs. The cobs were softened first by prolonged soaking in water. The corn cobs were generally given to the pigs to eat, and then when the pigs were finished with them and there was just the cob left, they would take those and use them to wipe themselves. So there was very little waste. When mass-published newspapers and catalogs became commonplace in the 19th century, Americans finally said goodbye to corn cobs and hello to Sears Roebuck. People would take the catalog, hang it in their outhouses, and they would read from it while they were doing their business. And at the finish of the business, they would tear off a piece and use it to wipe themselves. Things changed in the 20s. Unfortunately, Sears started using glossy print paper. The absorbing benefits of the catalog kind of lost it. So you didn't see so many people using the Sears catalog as toilet paper from then on. By that time, however, consumers had another option, real toilet paper. Here's Ken Fishberg, author of Toilet Paper Encyclopedia, and Charles Panetti. There was a man named Joseph Gaetti. He was a New Yorker, and he had a paper business in New Jersey. He was the first person who actually took paper, cut it into sheets, into small sheets, and sold it through drugstores as therapeutic paper. The people who bought them thought the paper was too nice and ended up using it as stationery, writing on it, and still using their catalog. In 1879, entrepreneurs Irvin and brother Clarence Scott began selling rolled toilet paper. It was made from tissue paper bought from other manufacturers, which they cut up, rolled, and repackaged. Although there have been some improvements over the years, today's toilet tissue is made basically the same way. In the 1940s, Scott's competitor, Northern Paper Mills of Green Bay, Wisconsin, began using chemicals to completely dissolve wood fibers and refer to their toilet paper as splinter-free. Today, nearly 2.4 billion people around the world don't have toilets. Nearly 150,000 people die every year from cholera. That's more than AIDS. In 2007, the prestigious British Medical Journal's 11,000 medical experts and readers, mostly doctors, voted modern sanitation as the number one medical advance since 1840. Not antibiotics, not vaccines, but toilets and clean water. The average human life expectancy increased nearly 35 years over the span of the 20th century. Roughly 30 of those 35 years are attributable to improvements in sanitation. Unless you count NASA's space toilets, the post-war era brought mostly incremental shifts in shapes and colors and shade carpet seat covers. While Harrington's godmother Elizabeth I might be baffled by a 21st century porcelain throne, 
Queen Victoria would easily recognize the seat upon which her great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth II, does her sovereign business. Harry, are you in there? In this modern Game of Thrones... Be right out! We're all privileged members of the same royal family. I hope you're not using the toilet, it's broken! I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story. And by the way, we learned about this problem in cities, too, when we were discussing the evolution of the automobile. Horse poop all over the streets of New York, Philadelphia, Boston. You'll learn this only here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're, well, just a couple of hours east of Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast, is a town called Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and you just heard Leonard Skinner reference, Leonard Skinner reference this place in their iconic song. Well, southeast of Memphis and southwest of Nashville, this little town has created a very big sound. Some of the biggest names in soul, funk, pop, rock, country, every genre in between recorded there, and our own Jesse Edwards brings us a front row seat. In the late 1950s, a young fiddle player from Mississippi by the name of Rick Hall hit paydirt when George Jones, Brenda Lee, and Roy Orbson began recording songs that he had written. He moved to Florence, Alabama, home of legendary record producer Sam Phillips, and opened a primitive recording studio above the city drugstore. With the typical egg crates on the walls, uh, car- uh, carpet that we've got out of a theater, etc., etc., uh, and we began to cut little demos and write songs. Soon, Rick had recorded his first hit with Arthur Alexander's "You Better Move On" in 1961. Rick would use studio musicians from Nashville to accompany the singer. Arthur had uh, written several tunes, but he couldn't play an instrument, so he had to pop his fingers and sang the song a cappello. And uh, so consequently, uh, he brought me a tune called You Better Move On and asked me what I thought. And of course, immediately I began, I was intrigued by Benny King, Stand By Me, and the Jacksons and people like that. And the beat was boom, 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 boom. That was a very popular beat up on the roof. A lot of <clears throat> drifters, coasters, a lot of people had those, had that groove. And that song to me fit that groove. And he said, what do you think? I said, I think it's a hit. I think we should cut it on you right away. He said, that's great. So we went in the studio with four microphones and a Berlant recorder, a small little Berlant recorder, used the bathroom for an echo chamber, and uh, and we proceeded to cut it. You asked me to give up the hand of the girl I love. You tell me I'm not the man she's worthy of. But who are you? Tell her who to love That's up to her 
Yes, and the Lord above You better move on After recording You Better Move On, Rick Hall now had to sell it to a major record company, something that's not exactly easy to do without street cred. I took it to Nashville because I didn't have any ends with New York, L.A., or any of the major cities, Philadelphia or uh, New Orleans, uh, and I was a country boy, no money, and no means to do anything. So I took it up there thinking I might be able to make a deal on it with the master. Uh, played to seven record label executives, uh, the Chad Adkins, the Owen Bradleys, Shelby Singletons, the Don Laws, etc., etc., but not knowing that they were strictly country people and didn't know anything about R&B or black music. Nashville was all country, and they turned down the song. But Rick Hall kept trying until a friendly DJ passed the track on to Randy Wood, founder of Dot Records. After it reached number 24 on Billboard in March of 62, Hall took the proceeds from that recording to build the sound studio on Avalon Avenue in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The city of Muscle Shoals is one of four towns grouped together with a combined population around 60,000, the other towns being Florence, Sheffield, and Tuscumbia. Helen Keller was born here, and so was legendary record producer Sam Phillips, who launched the careers of Elvis Presley. Johnny Cash and so many others out of his famous Sun Studio in Memphis, 150 miles to the west. Sam Phillips was also one of Rick Hall's early mentors, which helps explain how Rick began turning this relatively obscure place into the self-proclaimed recording capital of the world. Armed with one gold record under his belt and new facilities in Muscle Shoals at famed studios, Rick Hall set out to record another album. In 1963, he produced the first hit in that building with Steal Away by Jimmy Hughes. I've got to see you Somehow Not tomorrow Right now I know it's late had considerably more confidence in my abilities as a producer and thought maybe I'd found my stick. And I found Jimmy Hughes, who was working at a rubber plant here, Robbins Rubber Company in Muscle Shoals. He brought me a song called Steal Away that he'd written. I cut it and it was a hit, smash. To make a long story short, I had to press it up on my own label and promote it myself and go to all the black disc jockeys, New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Atlanta, Miami, by car, and do the promoting. But it became a very big smash record with VJ Records, and that, that started my black music career. Of course, I had been intrigued as a songwriter, a musician, and played all of those things that Ernie Cado and all the big acts, the black acts, that were selling a lot of records to the white audiences. And I was intrigued by it, and it was my stick. I, I loved it, still do, always will. Jimmy Hughes recorded the song in one take, backed by studio musicians, arranged by Rick Hall. The track hit number 17 on Billboard's Hot 100. With two hit records to his name, Rick Hall had now proven that his first hit wasn't a fluke. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, right here on Our American Stories. Oh, I can't wait. 
yes I do. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Fame Studios, and the Muscle Shoals sound. Here's Jesse. Alabama in 1963 wasn't exactly known as a time or place for racial harmony. The newly elected governor, George Wallace, had openly called for segregation in his inaugural address. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. It was also the year of the Birmingham campaign. Protesters led by Martin Luther King were arrested for parading without a permit. We own the move now. The beating and killing of our clergymen and young people will not Thousands of African Americans, many of them children, are arrested for protesting segregation. Fire hoses and police dogs were used against them. It was a dark chapter in American history. But back in this other little corner of the state, at Rick Hall's famed studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the very same year, blacks and whites were integrating in ways that would shape the history of American music forever. Fame Studios was now a hotbed for soul singers who wanted Rick Hall to record their songs using his Muscle Shoals rhythm section, also known as the Swampers, as the backing band. We in the music business are colorblind. Uh, I think most of the arts are colorblind. We never, some of my best friends in life, today and then for black people. You gotta remember this was in the 60s and this was when uh, George Wallace was standing in the school house door at the University of Alabama. It's when the National Guard came to Arkansas. These are, these are tough times and they didn't, uh, black people I had no problem with. If I had a problem with anybody, it was white people who didn't like me socializing or recording black music in Alabama with this all going on. But I never had any problem with it. Uh, not here. I had more trouble when I went to L.A. or New York than I had in, in, in the studio or in Alabama or on concerts and things of that nature. Singer-songwriters would come in, Rick's session players would back the artist, and they'd lay down some funky tracks, turn it into cash. They were so good, it was like printing money. And the hits just kept coming. Rick Hall produces Etta James' Tell Mama. You thought you hadn't found a good girl This was the biggest hit of her career. The next big hit to come out of Fame Studios was When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. When a 
Rick Hall knew that he had a big fat hit with When a Man Loves a Woman, so he ran it past legendary record producer Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. I found the master and sent it to him, and he called me and said he didn't think it was a hit. I said, you're crazy. It's a smash, Jerry. All you got to do is hide and watch. And he said, uh, well, send it up. Uh, so I sent it up, and he listened to it. He said, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's a hit. Are you sure you think this is a hit? I said, it's a smash. I bet my life on it. Number one. Not number two, number one. Wexler reluctantly agreed to release the song on Atlantic under the condition that it be re-recorded because the horns at the end of the track were slightly out of tune. The horn players were fired, the song was re-recorded, but the tapes got mixed up. Atlantic released the original version in April of 66 by mistake. Sledge's recording becomes the first number one hit, recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Now that Rick Hall had established himself as a player in the music business, Jerry Wexler started bringing bigger and bigger acts down to Muscle Shoals. I had Wilson Pickett signed up, and for a year we just couldn't seem to make any headway. Uh, the songs that I brought him, he didn't like. The songs that he wanted to record didn't strike me as being suitable. So I took Wilson Pickett to Muscle Shoals, and there were just... A listing of chords, chord progressions, no rhythm pattern, nothing, just chords. And we put the record together by the musicians playing the music and playing into a pattern. And the first thing we cut was Land of a Thousand Dances, which was enormous. And the energy and the sonority of that record, it, to me, is wonderful to this day, the projection. Just something that comes, that leaps out of a record. I call it the sonority of the record, that it's different from the rhythm, it's not exactly the sound, it's not the songs, it's the gestalt, it's the way the sound of the record impacts on the ear instantly. And to me, that's the magic ingredient in a phonograph record. If you can convey that, it can't be defined or explained, but it's something that just grabs you. And so from then on, Muscle Shoals became the place that I preferred to go and love to go. Jerry Wexler then introduced Aretha Franklin. He said, you know, I've got this great little studio down in um, Muscle Shoals, and these cats are, these cats are really greasy. You're going to love it. Aretha had made nine albums while under contract to Columbia Records, but she wasn't selling. When they let her contract lapse in 66, Wexler signed her to Atlantic and flew her directly to Muscle Shoals in 1967. We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. I Never Loved a Man rose to number nine on the Hot 100 and became Franklin's first number one hit on the R&B charts. Franklin became a superstar after this recording.
Rick Hall recorded the song in 20 minutes. But it was only after a tense moment in the studio, and you have to appreciate the context here. Aretha was in the deep south during the mid-60s with a room full of sweaty white good old boys that she had never met, all while being asked to cut a hit record on the spot. No pressure, right? After an awkward moment of silence, one of the house musicians, Spooner Oldham, started playing the opening riff on a keyboard. And that's the sound of our tour guide, playing the exact same Wurlitzer piano used on the record. You can come here to Fame Studios today and hear it for yourself. So it's really cool, y'all. It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing, which I need a lot of help. I know, isn't it beautiful? It's like R&B in a box. It's just amazing. Our guide does a little of everything here at Fame Studios. So my name is Spencer Coates. I'm the studio assistant here. I've been here for about four and a half years, and I'm just one of like the everything guys around here. I'm one of the engineers. Uh, primarily do the assistant engineering in the room. Um, but, you know, I just help out with all like the tours. I sell merch uh, and really just try to make sure that anybody that comes inside Fame really has a great time and... Uh, it's a fun gig. Other than that, you know, at night we're all songwriting, making records, and just trying to do everything we possibly can to get a little taste of what everybody else that we see on the walls every single day had. So it's a, it's a blast. It really is. Fame Studio Tours run six days a week, no reservations, at 10 bucks per person. And it's a functioning studio that's recently been used by artists like Jason Isbell and Steven Tyler. I could get into a long list of every rock star who's come and gone around here, but it would be too long. Just assume that anybody who's anybody in the music industry has recorded here, wants to record here, or plans to record here. Dwayne Allman once pitched a tent in the parking lot just to be close to the action. He became friends with Rick Hall and ended up showing Wilson Pickett how to play Hey Jude. They recorded it in 1968. After hearing the recording, Jerry Wexler asked Rick Hall who was playing lead guitar. Rick told him, some hippie cat who's been living in our parking lot. Shortly afterward, Allman was offered a recording contract. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with our story about Muscle Shoals, and we were all laughing in the studio. Jerry Wexler asks Rick Hall, who's that guy playing guitar on that track? And he says, oh, some hippie kid living in the parking lot. And that was Dwayne Allman, folks, and the start of one of the great American blues and rock bands, the Allman Brothers Band and the creation of Southern Rock. And now we return to the story of this small town that rose up to be a big, big music town in this country. Here again is Jesse. The Muscle Shoals rhythm section that worked for Rick Hall at Fame Studios became known as the Swampers in 1969 
They left Rick Hall to create their own recording company known as the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. Rick Hall felt betrayed. But there was nothing he could do about his house band setting up their own recording studio across town. But he eventually gets over it. The Swampers set up shop inside of an old coffin showroom on Jackson Highway in Sheffield, Alabama. They get straight to work by recording Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, Paul Simon's Kodachrome, and the Staple Singers, I'll Take You There. That's just to name a few of the first big hits to come out of this new studio. Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, Joe Cocker, Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, Cat Stevens. All of them would record here between 69 and 79. The studio moved in 1979 and the building was shut down until 2013 when a $1 million grant from an unlikely source allowed a complete restoration of the studios. That million dollar donation came in from rapper Dr. Dre, who just happened to appreciate the music and the history that's come out of this little building. Just like famed studios across town, Muscle Shoals Sound Studios has recorded the soundtracks to many of our lives. And you can come here and experience it for yourself. You can even use the famous toilet that has seated rock royalty from Keith Richards to Bob Dylan. On any given day, you might even just run into one of the original Swampers. If you didn't know what they look like, you'd probably miss them, because they look just like ordinary, everyday Americans. But the lives they've lived and the stories that they can tell are anything but ordinary. Jimmy Johnson is an original Swamper. And he's performed with Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and countless others. He also engineered three tracks on the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. I started playing guitar because of Chuck Berry. Uh, Before that, my dad, a country music player, had tried to influence me to play, and I I had no interest because I didn't like country music. I like R&B, blues, and jazz, certain types of jazz that don't get too wild. By the time I got influenced by that, uh, by Chuck Berry, I heard him on the radio playing Johnny B. Good. And when I heard that, I said, I've got to learn how to do that. And I did. There was no schools, no uh, place to go to learn, you know, how to play on sessions or anything. There was no, uh, back then, we didn't even have charts. I did learn how to read number charts, and that's what we used on sessions uh, from New York, L.A., Nashville, Memphis, everywhere, and here. First time I got paid, I was about 11 years old. I played at the Tuscumbia Armory Square Dance. Half the night was square dance music, and half the night on Saturday nights was rock and roll. And so I made 10 bucks. I had no clue that I could do this for a career. But uh, I got into a band. Our band was called the Delrays. And we started playing colleges when I was still in high school. At that time, when I started, there was no studios around. And uh, and the ones in Nashville 
were very hard to to get involved with. It was like a, almost impossible. For some reason, of which I'm thankful for today, we never had to leave. And uh, instead of going to New York, L.A., Nashville, London, wherever, they came to us. And we felt blessed that that happened. Uh, when we first started, nobody ever used the geographic name Muscle Shows for anything except aluminum. When we decided to name our studio, once we started it, we finally settled on Muscle Show Sound Studios. And then we had to name the rhythm section, which we named it basically the same thing. David Hood is another original swamper who started his career as a backup musician at Fame Studios. He went on to co-found Muscle Shoals Sound Studio with Jimmy Johnson, where they produced songs for Willie Nelson, Cher, all sorts of others. He played bass for Boz Skaggs and Aretha Franklin, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Traffic, the Staple Singers, Etta James, Percy Sledge. You get the picture. I saw my first bass guitar, which is my instrument, at the... Naval Reserve, which is a facility in Sheffield that we later bought and put our recording studios in, but they would have dances there. And uh, I was in the room, and I'd hear this doom, 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 and I would go up and look at the band. There were two guitar players there, and I'd think, well, what's making that noise? And I'd go back to the back of the room, because that's where you heard the bass, and then hear it, and I'd finally realized that one of those instruments was larger than the other one, and it was the bass guitar. And I was in high school before I knew that the instrument I make my living with even existed. I started late, I guess you could say, because most of the people I work with have been playing since they were 10, 12 years old, and I started playing uh, the bass at around 18. After a couple years with this band, it was uh, the Mystics with Terry Woodford was singing. Uh, Terry's father put up the money for us to come here to Fame Studio and rent the studio for, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon. And uh, we recorded two things there, and that was my first recording. And I saw then that, wow, I love this. The recording, that's what it, where it's at. The playing live is okay, but it involves a lot of travel and lifting amplifiers and things like that. When you go in the recording studio, you're just you're there to make music. And I really was turned on immediately to the idea that you would record something and listen back and hear it and think, mm, well, I need to fix that. And I, so I think early my career in, mu- in uh, recorded music was the direction for me. Now, Kevin Hawley is a longtime guitar player for Little Richard, and he was recorded with Dwayne Allman and many others. He became a swamper in 1991. A typical session here, I mean, if you if you're say you're a singer and you come in Muscle Shoals and you hire the A team, they'll listen to the demo, they'll write a chart out, and without rehearsing it, they'll just count it off, and then it just happens. A lot of artists will come here thinking that they're going to get this Muscle Shoals sound, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, you can't force it. You know, it happens naturally. You bring any artist from any genre to Muscle Shoals and use Muscle Shoals players, it's going to sound like Muscle Shoals. If you bring a bunch of guys from Los Angeles here to record, it's going to probably still sound like L.A. But to me, the feeling here, 
you know, is with the musicians that, that play here. When we return, more of the Muscle Shoals sound, Fame Studios, and the musicians who made it all happen, right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at ouramericannetwork.org. American Stories, and you're listening to the stories of legendary fame studios and the Muscle Shoals sound. And we've been listening to the voices of the session players, who so often go unnoticed and underappreciated once a record becomes a hit. And now we return to our own Jesse Edwards. The definitive Muscle Shoals documentary came out in 2013 titled Muscle Shoals. If you haven't seen it, order it online. It's incredible. But unfortunately, just five years after its release, the father of Muscle Shoals music, Rick Hall, passed away on January 2nd of 2018 at 85 years old. During his music career, he recorded almost every genre of music from country to R&B, and he's responsible for roughly 350 million album sales worldwide. But the spirit of this place lives on. It's crawling with world-class musicians who have recorded some of the best music that life has to offer. Will McFarlane has been playing guitar for over 40 years professionally, six of those with Bonnie Raitt. Now, he's part of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. Got some really nice gigs. Really apprenticed in Bonnie Raitt's band. I was in her band for five, six years. Toured with her all through the 70s. And... Uh, Got married and had kids, and L.A. just wasn't the place to live. And I met some folks from here. I met Jimmy Johnson in a hotel room in L.A. And uh, he asked me to play him some songs. And I'd always loved Muscle Shoals music and just uh, came down here to demo a couple. He said, I'd like to demo that song. So they graciously flew me down here from L.A. And wasn't in a traffic jam for three days and just uh, the beautiful river and the area. And I flew back to L.A. And the first time it took me, you know, four hours to go 38 miles, I just said, this is not living. And I packed up my family and moved here in 1980, where I was fortunately became part of the rhythm section. Really, I became a friend of the Swampers, as it's called, and uh, worked with them for 20 years. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I think drew me to Muscle Shoals uh, was that you know, if you hear Memphis, and I love Memphis, but if you hear Sam and Dave or Otis, you go, that was cut in Memphis. Or you hear Motown, you go, that was cut in Detroit. But the same band did 
I'll take you there, old-time rock and roll, Kodachrome, and torn between two lovers, and low spark of high heel boys. I mean, how versatile is that? And so you didn't always immediately know, but there was some intangible, it was some place in the pocket that all of those things I just mentioned to you have an amazing feel. And that's another thing about Muscle Shoals. One of the mantras here is less is more. They're never overproduced. It's never, you're never smashed in the face with everybody, everybody's every thought. It's just generally, you know, when you listen to When a Man Loves a Woman and, and a Do Right Woman or those things, they, the song breathes. You hear the song, you hear the artist. And, and that's what I was drawn to, especially after all my years with Bonnie where, you know, what was she? She wasn't country. She wasn't straight blue. You know what I mean? She was just this versatile, you know, combination of all of our influences that we loved the most. And I just felt Muscle Shoals was a perfect fit for the way I played and the way I thought and the kind of music I love. Putting your finger on what makes music that comes out of Muscle Shoals sound the way that it does can be difficult even for the swampers themselves. But Will McFarlane has a pretty good idea of where it comes from. The wonderful stuff about the guitar playing out of Muscle Shoals is most of it's only two notes at a time. You know, it's not these big driving things. You hear people go, oh, excuse me, <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of thing, you know, beautiful thing. So you'd hear, uh, you know, I'd be doing a Bobby Bland record maybe or something, and it'd just be... You know, something. Sometimes the artist would go, give me a few love licks. You know, and he'd want, or, you know, or really, you know, that kind of two-stop thing where you hear, you'll hear when a man loves a woman, you The guitar player just plays very few notes, and that's one of the things I really love about it, is the minimalistic approach. What I really feel like the Muscle Shoals mentality is, if people hear a great song, and the artist is right there in front of them, they're saying, how can we be your band? We want to capture, you. we don't want you to, we don't want to make a record for you that, that sounds like so-and-so went to Muscle Shoals. We want to make the record for you that you hear in your head. But in Muscle Shoals, I think one of the great intangibles is, is that I really believe every musician in this town that hears a song and sees an artist that we all respect, we go, how can we help you to so dig your, your music in this town? We're going to lay our preset and our musical egos down, and we're going to let the song shine. We want the artist to shine. Walt Aldridge worked at Fame Recording Studio for 17 years under Rick Hall as a producer, songwriter, and backup musician. He's written dozens of hit country songs, including five number ones. Songwriting picked me as opposed to me picking it. I, I was lucky to have a guy named Rick Hall who was sort of my teacher and mentor. I came out of school thinking that I wanted to be a session guitar player, and then I heard some real session guitar players and went out and I always say tied my guitar on the back of my car and dragged it home, you know. But he always encouraged me to, to engineer and do everything that I possibly could, and, and I did. And it has served me well, but along with that, I was just writing songs at night and trying to learn about that craft. All of a sudden, I had a song recorded and it became a hit by Ronnie Millsap, and people were calling me to, to write songs for them or write songs with them, and I said, hey, I, I think I could do this. And so 
While I never quit doing those other things, that sort of became my specialty is writing songs. That number one hit that he wrote for Ronnie Millsap, There's No Getting Over Me, hit number one on the country charts in 1981 and number five on the Hot 100. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling, there ain't no getting over me Like so many other session players here in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Walt Aldridge is often asked what it is about this place that makes it so special when it comes to recording hit records. I'm not sure I have an answer, but maybe an even more appropriate question might be, why has it continued since the scene developed here at Muscle Shoals? It's consistently had music makers and creators that have been an important part of the, the international and global music scene as writers, as musicians, as artists, as producers, as engineers, studio owners, and what have you. During that time, you had Detroit and Memphis and Macon and a lot of other outposts other than Nashville and L.A. and New York that became important recording centers, but they're gone. It's still here. I mean, we still have important music being made here, and that is the intriguing question to me is how has it continued when those other places have come and gone? I don't know that I or anyone else has the answer to that question other than the fact that the people here seem to have a really fierce commitment to that history, heritage, and to the process of mentoring or passing it on down to the next generation. I think the the muscle show sound, if there is one traditionally, has always been a it's a combination of, of, of blues and country music. I, those that really are devotees or students of the music know that there have been several eras to Muscle Shoals music. There was that, and then there was certainly the rock era that, that had Bob Seger and the Stones and Paul Simon and a lot of things that were cut in this actual room that we're sitting in. And then you have all the songwriting that has happened. I mean, an incredible number of hit songs that have been accounted for by writers living and working here in the Shoals area. But I think when the question is asked of me of what is the Muscle Shoals sound, I always think of that rhythm section sound of the 60s, which was predominantly white guys playing their interpretation of soul music. But it also had a little something else. It had a little funk to it, a little blues, a little rural, uh, homespun, organic quality that was not being made in uh, Memphis, Macon, other areas that were making, Detroit, Philadelphia, other areas that were making soul music. The hundreds of recordings that came from the Muscle Shoals area have influenced the way people all over the world appreciate American music. And it's all thanks to one man, Rick Hall. If you're ever in the northern Alabama area and you have any interest in the history of American music recording, put this place on your bucket list if it isn't there already. You're guaranteed to get chills up your arm and up the back of your neck every time you enter one of these sacred studios. For the very first time. For Our American Stories in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, I'm Jesse Edwards. Something tells me you would have stayed another month there, Jesse, and maybe never come back. I'm glad you're back. And what a piece of, well, let's just say reporting, if we can call it that. And do go to Muscle Shoals. It's the river. It's the space. It's that small town feel, too. Don't ever forget it. The musician said over and over again that minimalistic approach but they lead minimalistic lives, folks. That's what they do. And they lead the lives so many other Americans live in small-town America. Minimalistic spaces. Less is more. You heard them say that over and over again. A couple of notes on a guitar, 
and the artists. What a crazy idea, the musicians serving a song. If you know anything about studio musicians and session players, very often they're auditioning for gigs on other records. They're overplaying. When you went to the Shoals and you got the Swampers, they were there to serve you. Muscle Shoals, what a story. Rick Hall's story, the story of American music. And the story of race music, white and black music being recorded together by two races at the same time, being played on white and black stations all over this country. It had not happened before until Muscle Shoals. All of that here on Our American Stories. 